You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. First of all, my name is Pete Betke. Um, I'm a professor here at George Mason and director of the F.A. Hayek Program. Um, but I just wanted to have a word for the graduate students. I have to speak up. Okay, I want to graph. Some of you might know this. Those have known me for a long time. I'm kind of crazy about basketball, and I used to coach basketball over at the local high school here for many years and on uh, different programs. I used to go to coaching clinics, and one of the best coaching clinics was the old coach from Purdue, a guy named Gene Cady, and he was known as a disciplinarian and he would uh, penalize his players. And he tried to tell all of us high school coaches, he says, you set hard limits. And he says, they had to run on Katie time. He goes, that meant if they weren't at, that be- uh, at the bus by 15 minutes before the time, we didn't take them to the game. Then he stopped for a second. He says, well, except when Glenn Robinson was playing for me. And Glenn, <laughs> Glenn Robinson was an All-American. He goes, and Glenn was always late. And he'd say, I would say, damn, my watch isn't working like that. And they'd wait for Glenn to get there. So. By the way, for the graduate students' first years that are here, if you snooze, you lose, get here early, uh, these things fill up. Anyway, thank you so much. It's a fantastic uh, show, showing to come out here. We're here today to uh, celebrate and to discuss uh, Richard Wagner's James Buchanan and Liberal Political Economy, a book that was published uh, in 2017. Uh, James Buchanan uh, passed away um, in January of 2013. Um, Earlier that academic year, in August of 2012, uh, five years ago, uh, he presented a paper at a seminar at the Public Choice Outreach Conference, which was held in our own Mason Hall, uh, Mason Inn. And uh, after his talk, I asked him how he was doing, and he replied to me, "Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to imitate him. I don't think this draft is working. I need to go home and do some revising. And I remember thinking at the time that don't we all want to have that attitude all the way to the end of our academic life. Uh, Buchanan was a towering figure in the field of political economy and social philosophy, and we are heirs to um, his legacy. Um, This is the first event that has been held in the newly named Buchanan Hall. Um, So, and I think it's very fitting uh, that we do that. Um, in fact, inside our seminar room, uh, the, which we call the Buchanan uh, room, we have a motivating quote that adorns the wall and reminds us daily that the task of the political economist is to, is to combine a working knowledge of the technical principles of economic science that are necessary to assess how alternative institutional arrangements impact the ability of individuals to pursue productive specialization and to realize peaceful social cooperation. Buchanan was all about how uh, we could find rules that allow us to live better together than we ever could uh, apart. Um, But our task, Buchanan remind us, doesn't end with this technical assessment of how alternative institutional arrangements impact economic activity, but most include the philosophical discussion that arises wherever and whenever we discuss the appropriate role of government in our practical affairs. Buchanan was, throughout his career, a dedicated Democrat. And his project, in the true Knightian fashion, represents a radical democratic departure from the progressive ethos of elite-driven public policy of his time. He sought to explore what institutional configurations enabled democracy to work in such a manner that externalities 
would be minimized, and yet deliberations between diverse and conflicting parties could result in agreement. Buchanan sought to find a political organization that exhibited neither discrimination nor dominion. It's an inspiring vision of a democratic system of governance and a society of free and responsible individuals, and it focused his and many of us analytical attention on exchange relations and the institutions within which those exchange relations take place. Richard Wagner is the perfect person to write this book. His association with Buchanan ran 50 years, and it included his time as his student, as his co-author, and as his colleague at University of Virginia, at Virginia Tech, and then at George Mason University. Dick is a major scholar of public finance and political economy and social philosophy in his own right, so this book is no mere hagiographic work. It is instead, as he put it, a rational reconstruction and a jumping off point for his and us, all of us, our own exploration in creative combinatorial theorizing about the liberal project in political economy. Dick is offering us an invitation to, into the quote unquote honorable tradition of political economy, and I say we should take it. The format for today will be as follows. We'll first hear from uh, Professor Wagner uh, for about 20 to 30 minutes, and then from Professor Karen Vaughn, who's the former department chair at George Mason University and is responsible for bringing Jim Buchanan to George Mason University in the first place. Um, and then we'll hear from Ross Emmett from Michigan State University, who's a leading authority in the world on Frank Knight and a leading scholar of history of political economy more generally, and each of them will have between 10 and 15 minutes. And then we'll open it up for Q&A uh, you know, after that. So please uh, join me in, in uh, welcoming Professor Richard Wagner. Well, thank you for that introduction, Pete. I'm very glad to be here to talk about Professor Buchanan and his work. Uh, he said I had 20 to 30 minutes. I had my timer here, as many of you students know, set for 20 minutes, so I will not start the timer until I figure out how to uh, work the slide here. Ah, not so hard. <laughs> okay, then I can start my timer. This is the cover of the book, Jim Buchanan, after he got out of the Navy in 1946 and then Chicago in 48. After that time, he was thoroughly a thinker. The only thing really besides thinking and writing he did was work as a farmer, so to speak. He, especially after his Blacksburg days, he had a farm several miles out in the country. And every time a neighbor would die, he would buy the land and, and add to it. But he was a thinker par excellence. Uh, uh, if you catch my symbolism, see the publisher gives you a template for the cover and then gives you a series of photos which you can select one. And I selected that one. Uh, it didn't quite fit the image I wanted, but it's close. That is, the idea was that public finance, when Buchanan encountered it in Chicago in the late 1940s, was a deep, dark, impenetrable, mysterious forest. Uh, nothing at all hospital growing there. And Buchanan wanted to bring light into that forest, and that's kind of 
when I was thumbing through the images from which I had to choose. So well, that's pretty good. It's a, it's a force. There is light. And so that's uh, my image of what Buchanan's project was all about, was trying to shed light on a topic that the economists hadn't really, with few exceptions, done anything with. And instead, we're very content to talk about political phenomena as just some impenetrable mess as governed by notions of social welfare functions and stuff like this. So this, this, this isn't really, you know, some of you as students know I often will talk about the importance of letting some time pass between writing a draft and then going back and revisiting it, refining it. Uh, well, I had agreed to do this book and to have it submitted by, the, by Christmas time. And my wife and I had Christmas company coming as I was finishing it up, and so I sent it off. A few days later, I noticed I didn't, I was uneasy with the cover because of this. Whoops, wrong way. Up there, you'll see the cover bothered me because I didn't, it supplied, there was Jim Buchanan, and there was liberal political economy, and he was then trying to fit himself into that. Whereas the title I really wanted, James M. Buchanan's liberal political economy, was the idea that he was Buchanan, he was doing his work, and in the course of doing that work, uh, he was changing some of the ideas that corresponded to the idea of liberal political economy. But the publisher said, no, we've already submitted this to various places. Uh, it's, it would be too much work to try to undo all of the stuff that however these things get broadcast. Whether true or not, I don't know. Uh, but um, anyway, I went with that. And so the, the image I put in that uh, book from the start is that Buchanan emerged from the University of Chicago in late 48 into 1949 as basically an oak sapling. And over the next 64 years, he grew into a gigantic tree. There's one image of an oak tree. Now, fortunately, I have this cane so I can actually point because <laughs> I have a bad knee that's going to have to be replaced when semester's over. Uh, but that, uh, what I have the characterization of Buchanan is that his thought does, as it developed, uh, uh, resemble a gigantic tree, an oak tree, that has a, a, uh, a core there, uh, and then it has various kinds of branches that spread out in various kinds of, of ways. Now, as far as oak trees go, I like that image perhaps a little bit better, but I couldn't decide either way. Though, the idea that I have is that, yeah, be, be, with respect to a rational reconstruction, again, the, the difference, at least as I mean it, between a rational reconstruction and an intellectual history is an intellectual history, if I were doing that, I would try to say, how did Buchanan finally become Buchanan? As a thinker, he wasn't Buchanan in 1949. He became Buchanan through the various things he did and, and he assembled. Uh, but that's a kind of a talent and competence that I, I don't have in, in great detail. I'm much more, I think, what I'd call a natural theorist, so to speak and so a rational reconstruction would be more my forte, where I say, okay, here at the end. Okay, dude, you've come to the end. What does it all amount to? What is its internal logic? And that's the kind of 
question that I posed in, in writing this book. And what resulted then is my model of Buchanan, which I will take a few minutes uh, to describe. Uh, you've seen these nice oak trees. Now, I don't think the cover is not an oak forest, but still, you've seen these oak trees. Now, next, you're going to find my uh, paper computerized sketching. Uh, perhaps you might remember. No, remember. But actually, it was about in the fourth grade when I was taking art in the fourth grade or third grade, and the teacher finally, after getting tired of my sketches, said, why don't you just go read for the rest of the semester? So I did, <laughs> because here's my model of Buchanan. Right there. <laughs> it's, it's written computer with a, with a little paints with a little pencil and eraser. And so what I have down here, public finance is the core. What that means, when Buchanan got out of the University of Chicago, he disliked what he passed for public finance at Chicago. He disliked what passed for public finance everywhere. Um, the big figures in public finance in those days would have been Francis Edgeworth and A.C. Pigou. And it was even worse at Chicago. Uh, in the sense that Chicago economics was the same kind of hortatory, normative kind of what government should do without ever understanding how it might do it. Buchanan wanted to do public finance differently starting from his very first paper published in 1949 in the Journal of Political Economy called something like the Pure Theory of Government Finance or something like that, that uh, he wanted to get away from the idea of treating government as some kind of black box, some kind of entity that was just instructed by an economist and then performed, and to treat government rather as composed of people as in all other walks of life, and so that means that the phenomena of public finance have to emerge out of actions and interactions among people. And that becomes, that was the basic fundamental seed that he planted in 1949. And if you follow through his body of work over the next 64 years, I think you'll see that uh, it's almost as if that sort of foundational presupposition almost elicited uh, what came later, much like Michelangelo describing a, his work on a block of marble as simply releasing what was inside of it. And I think in Buchanan's case, they were somewhat similar to that. Uh, you look at public finance, I mean, throughout his career, when he made contributions within the field of public finance, it would be altogether different from what most people would write about, for instance, you might have, uh, there was a huge, and it is, remains, a big literature on uh, what are called sacrifice theories of taxation, an idea of how a public entity could maximize or minimize the discomfort taxes imposed by distributing them in some way among people uh, that later got inverted to one of how uh, you can have a scheme of taxing and subsidying that will maximize social welfare. Now, Buchanan wanted to say, well, the phenomenon of public finance and democratic polities arises because people want to make them happen. And what is the explanation for how they might do that? And so you look at some of the papers 
he wrote things like uh, tax earmarking, not an adventure in what would be an optimal procedure for earmarking, but rather in terms of an explanation of under what circumstances do uh, politicians tend to earmark taxes. Uh, with respect to, for instance, progressive taxation, this big uh, literature, continuing ongoing literature about optimal income redistribution, uh, Buchanan turned that around and asked such questions as, are there arrangements under which, in contrast to a flat rate of tax, people might agree to a system of progressive taxation as a form of income insurance, you might say, whereas in periods of low incomes, you would pay relatively less. In periods of high incomes, pay relatively more. That was, those, I don't think he took that very far, but I mean, those were the kinds of questions that were on his mind in saying that the phenomena of public finance, taxes and spending, emerge out of people's choices and actions that uh, you'd say in this respect, uh, you wouldn't so much talk about the excess burden of taxation because you think about it, why is there a tax? Well, there must not, must not be because there are people who want the tax. Doesn't mean everyone wants the tax, but for there to be a tax, someone must want it. Some set of people must want it. And so maybe there's an excess burden. Some people dislike it doubly, but there's also a benefit to some as well. And that puts you into a uh, different kind of position, much like the position that Vilfredo uh, Pareto asked this question. It was in the Giornale degli Economisti back around 1920 when there was this big literature on maximizing social welfare that Edgeworth had spawned. And Pareto said, well, what about this maximizing social welfare or happiness when happiness for the land requires the avoidance of being eaten while happiness for the fox requires eating the lamb. And that's a whole different kind of problem set that, uh, that, that sets forth. And so throughout his work, starting from this very question of people living together in close geographical proximity, which is the basic social setting, uh, some of the phenomena that people living together generate correspond to the phenomena we know by the name of public finance, taxes, spending, budgeting, and so forth. But Buchanan wanted to put that very much on an explanatory foundation rather than simply taking it as some kind of normative adventure. Now, whenever you get groups of people, like you all are group, say, well, how do you all as a group differ from a mob? You have 500 people. Uh, are they a mob? How do they become not a mob? Well, the only way they can become a not mob is through some kind of, they have to constitute themselves in some fashion. There will be rules, procedures, principles of standing, and you're going to, that gets into, whoops, that gets into over here, this interest in constitutions, constitutional political economy, because as soon as you're talking about Fiscal phenomena, taxes and spending and budgeting, emerging out of some kind of collective process. Then you can't really talk about a collective process without inquiring about how that collectivity is constituted. Uh, because 
groups can't act unless there is some constitutive process, uh, some uh, provision of leadership and followership, uh, chairmen's uh, members, and the whole variety of things. And so I think that then led to Buchanan to say, well, these constitutional rules, constitutional principles, again, grew very naturally out of his interest in, in public finance as an explanatory project. And when you're talking about the constitution of groups, then we go to this branch on the left, federalism and associations. That is, there has to be, if you're pursuing this line of thought, one question that I would submit is going to naturally occur to you is, okay, well, Fiscal phenomena are group phenomena, but if you take some group phenomena, some, some territory, if you take some territory, is there going to be one group over that territory, or are there going to be multiple groups over that territory? That gets into theories of association, theories of federalism, so forth, theories of succession, which is a topic he also wrote about, and so forth. But uh, because... Uh, Otherwise, the option is simply to take a, a, a group as data, but Buchanan was very inclined to avoid taking things as data, a feeling that behind anything you take as data, there has to arise some explanation of that because the basic direction of his theoretical movement was one that you started with individual, individual action, individual belief, and interaction amongst individuals then generates uh, various kinds of formations, various kinds of, of datas that emerge out of, of, of individual action. And so that was his orientation there. If you look further in terms of his line of thought going up on the, the right up there, time and debt, then again, one of his recurring themes in his body of work uh, was that when you get into public business, public affairs, that just as in private affairs, uh, actions occur over some duration of time. The typical motif for action is a choice is undertaken now, the results of which won't appear until sometime in the future. Now, within the theory of private markets, we kind of uh, get away from any problems that might be created by that through the device of residual claimancy and private property. And so that means that the owner of a right of property bears the uh, anticipated future consequences of any actions taken today that might affect values tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. But it's different when you get to collective kinds of activities because the members of any collective assembly are going to be changing over. And so you have the situation of people making decisions today, but not really fully responsible for the value consequences that those actions might take in the future. And this creates a variety of kinds of further lines of analysis about how do democratic forms of government deal with these matters of time, or don't they deal with them? That was one of his recurring interests there, of course, was in, in public uh, debt analysis, where he then, of course, argued that uh, public debt is a way of passing costs from uh, people in the present to people in the future. You go further up uh, the left there, the entitlement and responsibility. At the same time, once you recognize in terms of the motion of time, the working of time, 
you have to realize that uh, democratic systems of a liberal form don't necessarily automatically maintain themselves. You go back to that old famous example given of Benjamin Franklin at the end of the Constitutional Convention when someone asked him what kind of a government uh, you all have created. And Franklin responded, a republic, if you can keep it. And so implicit in there is Benjamin Franklin was a kind of an evolutionary-minded uh, theorist that recognized that, sure, you have something, but to maintain it is another matter. And for Buchanan, uh, uh, responsibility for maintenance, if you ask what is, you might say, someone entitled to as an American citizen, if you go back to the, our first constitutional document, the Declaration of Independence, we're entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a very small set of entitlements compared to how we think about these things these days. And of course, there's always the inevitable problem that you can't speak about entitlement without speaking about responsibility for providing those entitlements. That, I think, my way of thinking is the one big virtue of equilibrium theory in economics is that tell us that any kind of statement you make about the demand side of living, you have to make a supporting statement about the supply side of living. And so if you're going to uh, have a Herbert Hoover type of entitlement of a chicken in every pot, you're also going to have to have a program that's going to compel people to produce chickens to fill those pots. Now, of course, political programs only emphasize the demand sides, not the supply sides for the most part. But still, that kind of interest in can democratic systems maintain themselves, the, pecu the peculiar problems that arise uh, because of the uh, system of ownership rights that exist within democratic forms were a, one of the things that he came increasingly to uh, uh, look at. He even penned a paper called something about afraid to be free around 2005 that was basically questioning whether there's a kind of an internal fortitude that is necessary to maintain a free democratic system and whether organized practice can work in such a way as to support or to erode that kind of framework. And so that all fits in there. And then finally, I, I, I put a top to the tree. There I call that social goodness. I'm, I'm going to take one minute. Uh, that's 20 minutes flies, especially, you know, I'm, I, yeah. well, <laughs> okay. gotcha, <laughs> good going, Gary, uh, so uh, social goodness, uh, Buchanan continually recognized that economics is a topic, the subject of which is of great human interest, because what economics concerns are the properties of our common living together, because that's the basic feature of life in a society, is that uh, we're all in this in some fashion or other, dependent upon levels of association. We're all in something together, again, dependent upon association. And so what economics uh, might contribute to uh, uh, social uh, goodness and so forth is also an enduring part of his work. And so while he started with a positive, an interest in trying to do public finance in an explanatory fashion, he also maintained to the end this interest. Well, the reason for being concerned with 
explanatory matters is he hoped that uh, the normative valuational kinds of concerns uh, would be done better. That is to say that it's very possible. One of the problems, I think, with the humane studies is we don't really have, I think, as solid an idea of impossibility, of requirements of law, and so forth, that uh, no one proposes to try to uh, create a gigantic balloon and make it big enough and fill it with enough gas to go to the moon. We just know that that, that would be an impossibility. Uh, so we can still, so gravity presents that, but it doesn't mean you can't overcome it, but it means you have to work inside of it. And that was very much Buchanan's kind of, I think, belief about his, his whole positive orientation towards collective action was to move the concern with collective action away from the idea that governance was the province of a few people who ran ship of state for everyone else to the idea that governance is the business of everyone. And yet there are, you know, just as there are law-like properties, you might say, in terms of economic action, so there would be law-like properties that play out in terms of the collective manifestations of that action. And so that is my uh, theory of Buchanan, and thank you very much. started today I was talking to Ross Emmett and he said he was really pleased to be here he wasn't quite sure why and I said well you're the night expert and I said I figure I'm here because I'm the Austrian representation so what I'm going to talk about as you might guess is Jim Buchanan's relationship to Austrian economics and especially at a very crucial time in the beginning of the Austrian revival and that is through the 60s and into the 70s where he was really digging deeply into the same issues that the Austrians at the time were exploring. Um, and I have to say, I really appreciate Dick's, Dick's reconstruction because I never got that consistency in Jim's work. I thought of him as three things. You know, I thought of him as, all right, this public finance guy, and I didn't care about public finance. Uh, constitutional economics, which I was interested in, but, you know, it wasn't my main thrust. But the thing that really grabbed me about Jim's work was all of his essays on subjectivism and the nature of economic theory. And so that's what I want to talk about. Because it's clear that in these papers, he was struggling with the same issues the Austrians were struggling with and trying to solve some of the same problems. So even though he never called himself an Austrian and would be offended by given some kind of a title, he hated any, anything that smacked of hagiography or, or, or um, ancestor worship. But still, the issues were the same. Now, my first introduction to James Buchanan was Cost and Choice. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with Cost and Choice. For me, this was a revelation having come from a standard economics program and a great, I was a great believer in the neoclassical apparatus. I loved shifting the curves around on the blackboard. But then Jim writes cost and choice and he says something that I found just startling and ultimately subversive in its, in its, uh, in its implications. 
Choice is not reactive. It's not just the simple butting up of um, utility functions against constraints. It is not something that is automatic and obvious, but it is a subjective evaluation of foregone alternatives, which and that it involved the expectation of what the consequences of these choices would be in the future. Um, and even more subversive is that one could never know the real cost of anyone's choice because if you, you had never taken that other path, you couldn't know how it would work out. So he, um, if, so there's unknowability about the consequences of your choice, unknowability about the genuine costs. All you have are the actual consequences that emerge. Um, but for me, what was particularly interesting is he brought in, in this discussion of cost, a whole problem of expectations, the future, the passage of time. And he saw my market prices as just one small part of how we evaluate uh, costs. So where do I go from there? I read, what should economists do? And what is amazing to me about that, especially now in retrospect, this was 1963, I believe, and it was an address to the Southern Economic Association, a presidential address, where he basically challenged the underpinnings of all the economics that everybody in that room was doing. <clears throat> Jim never shied away from controversy or challenge. Uh, now, what he, and what should economists do, he tells us, that choice is not the unit of analysis that we should be working on. It is it, what the unit of analysis should be exchange. And this is very important because exchange is really a social interaction. It's not an isolated individual thing. You have individual agents, but they can only satisfy their, their projects and plans through interaction with others. So he thinks this is, should be the unit of analysis. And then he says something really interesting. He said, exchange can never just be automatic because even conceiving of the possibility of an exchange requires imagination. So here we have people who are, you know, they may be ignorant of the consequences of their action, there may be uncertainty, but they're imaginative. And, and he comes back to this theme several times in different papers. Uh, exchange uh, um, requires imagination and competition, this is another thing, competition is not a condition as it is in, in uh, perfectly competitive theory. It's just there. Competition itself, he says, emerges through the interactions of people. So competition is an outcome which if any of you have read Menger know that this is very, it will resonate with the, with the Austrians in the audience. Markets become competitive. So once again, we're looking at a theory of becoming and not just a static analysis of uh, some endpoint. So, it, and, and then he ends up by saying, um, competition is not a means to an end. And in neoclassical theory, what are we always aiming for? Efficiency. It's not a means to an end. There is no overriding efficiency. All we have, and this is a means for free people to pursue their own ends in, con in concert with each other. Well, I uh, and then the third pillar of this, this subjectivist economics that he was 
he was uh, playing around with, I find a natural and artifactual man. I know Pete loves that article. And for good reason, because the one, he, he, he kind of knocks the, the stilts out of yet one more very important um, assumption of neoclassical theory. And that is the utility function. You having a problem there, Frank? Oh, okay. Um, there. So he said the, the utility function is not only a fiction, it's a particularly disturbing and unhelpful fiction because, he says, um, we only discover our preferences in the act of choosing. We don't know them and then kind of read them off a list. They, they emerge through the act of choosing. And um, human beings, moreover, can choose to become different from what they are. And, what, and this is the phrase that I think gets repeated often enough. Man needs to, the freedom to become the man he wants to become. And let's expand that men and women need the freedom. Uh, he, he came from a generation where it's perfectly acceptable to use one pronoun. Now, so there are no fixed preferences. Market costs are historical data. They, don't, they are influencing choice, but they are not the sum total of choice. We don't know the consequences of the future. This were all the themes, as we know, during the 60s, well, mostly the 70s, that Austrians were talking about. And they, are all, they were all, at least for me, eye-opening observations. But having made all these observations about ignorance and uncertainty and processes of time and the, and the malleability of human choices, you're faced with a problem. What kind of economics do you make out of that? And, and this was, of course, the problem the Austrians were struggling with. Well, Jim was, gave, a, gave a paper at a Liberty Fund conference that Israel Kirzner put together in 1982. And in that, he gave a paper called The Domain of Subjective Economics. And I don't think this paper is, is given quite the respect it deserves because he puzzles with this question. How do you retain what he called the predictive content of economic theory while still accounting for imagination, creativity, radical uncertainty? I mean, he's puzzling about this because economics, neoclassical economics is not useless. It actually, it's very powerful in certain circumstances. And he takes, I love this, he takes as his, as his, the, the, the jumping off point for his analysis, some experiments that were going on at Texas A&M on rats. And they were doing, their, their experimental economics was not about people, it was about rats. And they would alter the, the energy cost of trying to get pellets of food. And you know what they found out? Rats have downward sloping demand curves. And so he said to himself, how can this be? You know, are, are human beings like rats? And, and, he's, and he comes up with the answer, sometimes. You know, sometimes. Because we do kind of respond to changes and constraints and often in predictable ways. But he said, they're more than rats. And so what we have to do to, to re, to retain, is build an economics that retains some of this predictive content that we get from the supply and demand curves. But in conjunction with this, he said, 
we have to develop a subjectivist economics. And uh, he said the, 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 the domain of subjective economics is the um, imaginative part of human action, creativity, and radical uncertainty. So he said, but there are patterns of behavior, and this is an important phrase I want to come to back to. There are patterns of behavior in human action that allows economics to have predictive content. But then there's unpredictable things. And so he says the subjective domain is the dynamics of a free society. And what he means be this independent actors who are able to pursue their own projects and plans, as Kirzner would have said. Um, but we have, but then he ends with some ringing, ringing uh, challenges. Subjective economics is a way of thinking about economic processes. We, that we have to impose intellectual order on apparent chaos. We have to sweep away thought patterns carried over from positive theory. We have to, and then the, build on shackle. Well, shackle was even out there for the Austrians at that time. But Buchanan puts this challenge out, how do we, you know, that we have to work in the two together in some way. Okay, that's a great challenge, but then what do you do? And of course, this was the whole debate in the, in the Austrians in the 80s, you know, how do we explain order if we give up neoclassical economics? Now, Buchanan was great at offering the challenge, but he didn't do a whole lot to answer the challenge because that wasn't what he was interested in primarily. His subjectivism, I think, as grows, as Dick has explained, grows out of his his um, public finance, but also his debt theory. He, he, you, need, you need to find a way um, to, to meld the two. So one of the things Jim does is offer the rules of the game as a possible avenue for exploring the order that emerges. And, and that's, that's where he put his effort. And, um, this, and so, like Smith, he thought all you needed was peace, property rights, low taxes, and, you know, and, and non-intrusive government. And then he spent time trying to figure out what rules would, uh, would be most conducive to economic well-being. Uh, if there are flaws in the system, you've got, to, you've got to work on correcting the rules. How much time do I have? Well, I need only five. Right, okay. So now, what he, what, what, here's the thing I find, again, kind of troubling but understandable. What he says is, you know, if, when, when asked, well, how do you, how do you, describe this order, he falls back on general equilibrium theory, and as, as did Hayek, by the way. Now, Dick has a great um, observation in his book. He said he had to speak in the language of the, of, the, uh, of the profession, and you can't communicate with people if you make up new words and new, you know, you have to frame ideas and words that are understood. But I think there's another thing going on here, too, and that is it was the metaphor, the only metaphor he had to show how the parts fit together. It's a very flawed metaphor. As a matter of fact, it's the antithesis to the subjective economics he wants to talk about, but it was what we had at the time. Now, 
this has all been a riff on one thing Dick says in, in his book, and that is Buchanan was a complexity theorist before there were such things. And that's what got me going on this, because when, when you look at the, at, at the theory of com complex adaptive systems, everything fits. You have independent actors operating in conjunction with each other, have producing emergent orders, emergent, emergent properties. These patterns that Jim talks about is one of the emergent properties, institutions. So it would have, it would have been a perfect fit had he known about it. And I have to say, when I first discovered complex adaptive systems, I said, wow, this is it. You know, this is, now economics is going to take off from here. We're all going to realize what we have, and we're going to recast how we do economic theory. Well, I guess I should conclude with the great disappointment <laughs> that we've faced since then. Um, not only did that not take, the neoclassical consensus has fallen apart. And as from what I gather, is from, look, from brief Consult a brief uh, look at economics journals. All anybody does is data mining and uh, and uh, uh, studies in support of government policies. Now, <clears throat> Jim would be rolling over in his grave, I think. But I have two things to to, to, to say that he might have responded with. <clears throat> what he would probably have regarded the new economics as the economics of dentists, which he always rather disparaged. But there was something else he always would say to you, no matter how bad the thing, things got, he would say, you just got to keep the faith. And I think that's the way I'll end. <laughs> Let me begin by saying how thankful I am for the privilege of participating in today's forum honoring the publication of Richard Wagner's book on Jim Buchanan's liberal political economy. It's an honor to participate in this, not only because I'm such an admirer of Jim's work, but also because in this summer of discontent about him, I'm happy to have the opportunity to say something about a book that in a recent book review I wrote, I called a useful antidote to the foolishness that's circulating elsewhere. Dick calls his book a rational reconstruction and just like him, I'm going to uh, start with comments about this task of rational reconstruction. And I'm going to give it a somewhat different reading than, um, than, than Dick did, so it's going to be fun to kind of compare them. And um, I'm re-talking about his reconstruction, so we, you, he gave you what he thinks his reconstruction is, and I'll be giving you what I think his reconstruction is, so we're, we're going to have some nice little interplay maybe. Um, so you may have wondered when you picked up the book or saw the title what a rational reconstruction is. By the way, I almost called this Rationally Reconstructing Jim Buchanan, and then I realized that might be a somewhat um, macabre um, thing. Among intellectual historians, at least, the term stands in contrast to historical reconstruction, which, as you could probably imagine, is the task of reconstructing a work of a thinker in the thinker's own intellectual context. That is, the historian puts aside the, her own contemporary issues and perspectives and seeks to re-educate herself about the past. In, and you notice the use of the word re-educate. To re-educate herself about the past in order to engage the thinker, thinker in, in this case a political economist, on his own terms. Rational reconstruction is in this context, the opposite of historical reconstruction. If I can put it indelicately, um, 
A rational reconstruction is where a contemporary theorist re-educates the past thinker in the ideas and methods of the present in order to see what we as current theorists make of this past theorist's work on our terms. Okay? And this is actually pretty close in my reading of Dick's book to his goal. Um, indeed, he tells us that he wants to see and he argues that we ought to see that Jim's work stands up today in terms of today's research goals and agendas, perhaps even better than it did during Jim's time. Right? Um, so, <clears throat> in preparing for these remarks, I went back and looked at the first letter that Jim ever sent me. Yes, I'm a historian. I keep all my correspondence even uh, before it was digital. Um, it's dated June 21st, 1989. This letter was a set of comments on my first attempt at a historical reconstruction notice how I use that term, um, of Frank Knight's work, which Karen Vaughan, this is a like, you know, family of interactions, um, had graciously passed on to Jim. The letter closed with the following remark. I do not personally think much of trying to force discussion into rather artificial categories such as historical versus rational reconstruction. It seems to me, and this, by the way, corresponds to what Dick was suggesting about um, Jim's work. It seems to me that we should study a person's work for the insights they offer and that it becomes relatively unimportant whether or not the works are internally consistent. In Knight's case, his attitude towards the work of other scholars and towards the world generally, well, these were far more important than the specific details of his system, if indeed he had a system at all. Okay. So, um, uh, Dick has provided us with an account of Jim's work which suggests that there's a systemic element to it. And, um, and, and Jim wonders whether um, you know, we, we, we want to construct system out of uh, interaction. And that, uh, of course, any of you who have read Frank Knight will know that um, uh, it's very difficult to suggest that he had a system. Well, having had Jim, as usual, put me in my place, and maybe Dick in his place. I'm nevertheless going to press on with this rational reconstruction theme because Dick, I think, uses it to excellent effect. Here, here's a good example of Dick's rational reconstruction from the early discussion of the calculus of consent and public finance. And the quote goes like this. The calculus of consent was published in 1962 and used tools of thought and modes of expression that were in play at the time. This situation creates problems in understanding past scholarship when the tools of thought in play between then and now have changed. The calculus of consent is universally cited as one of the half dozen or so canonical works of public choice, and it's undoubtedly the earth text of Virginia political economy, but the book reflects the, in spades the problems I've just mentioned. It was constructed using mostly simple neoclassical tools of thought that were in wide use at the time. Among other things, this generated a focus on representative agents and median voters. Yet the intuition behind the book, give me my stopwatch back. Was to use economic logic to make sense of the complex construction of the American constitutional system of 1789 where power was divided in numerous ways and not concentrated in some image of a median voter. The calculus of consent and the vision of public choice it enables is best understood as a confluence of the liberal political economy of classical times, I kind of take that to mean Smith 
and company, or did you mean like really classical times? Yeah, classical economic times, yeah. And the public finance orientation of the classical Italian theorists. In saying this, I don't deny sensibility to the standard reading, that is the public choice reading, but rather assert that the alternative reading is more consistent with the author's intuitions and their later bodies of work. Now Dick's reconstruction here suggests that the standard stories that we often tell about Jim's work, the one that I've always said is that his work kind of expands, in fact your tree kind of suggests it, um, that it moves from public finance to public choice to constitutional political economy, maybe even to moral philosophy. Um, or or um, it also um, suggests that the refrain, the constant refrain we've heard this summer, that Jim taught us that elected officials and bureaucrats are merely selfish, and that Jim himself became the agent of those who could purchase their time and his time and energy, that these are misguided readings. Dick suggests that Jim's questions and intuitions remained the same, but that advances in the field allowed him the opportunity to gradually employ new language to, um, to, um, answer, to try to answer his questions. A passage from the final words of the book highlight Dick's view. And these are the final words of the book, not the text. It's from the final words of the appendix. Jim Buchanan had a dream. I like that. <clears throat> he wanted to create a new orientation towards public finance. In this, he surely succeeded and fought to the end to keep the dream alive. I think from time to time, he fell back too fully onto closed form models when advancing his dream, and, um, when, when advancing his dream might have been pursued more effectively by adopting more open-ended models. And then he goes on to talk about uh, why Jim told him he couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, so um, so th this is very nice because it, it suggests that this is you know, consistency and yet he, a constant search for recasting the argument and the employment of new techniques and the limitations of language at, in a time frame for capturing ideas. Uh, as a historian, I'm very appreciative of those kind of insights. Now, Dick's subtitle is A Rational Reconstruction, implying that there could be others. And he is correct. It's my understanding of rational reconstruction is right. So as I considered his book, I'm actually going to slip back because that's going to come just a little bit later. As I reconstructed the book, I found myself thinking that if I were to undertake a rational reconstruction of Jim's work, there was one theme that I would develop more than Dick did. And this is just a difference in emphasis, right? My emphasis as opposed to his emphasis. I readily admit that this difference reflects you know, my interest. What I would do and what I would reflect more on is the difference drew, Jim drew in considering political economy and morality especially the, the distinction he made between moral community and moral order. Now, political economists did not particularly know what to do with what Jim, when Jim wrote about moral order and moral community. And social and political theorists didn't bother to pay attention to him, so they didn't consider it either. So you'll find surprisingly little commentary about this distinction that Jim attempts. And I, I think it was an attempt on his part. I'm not sure he settled on it by any means. So, but let me... Um, I found this summer, I found myself returning to the distinction a couple of times. So let me conclude my remarks with these thoughts about moral communities, moral order, and the problem of social movements. A moral community is a group united by a common morality. 
and who seek through their life together to live out the consequences of the morality they pursue. I think here for a 20th century example of uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's Gemeinsames Leben, or Life Together in English, written in the late 1930s when Bonhoeffer led a secret seminary charged with the task of carrying the life of the confessing church forward during the early but very dark days of the Nazi regime. Gemeinsames Leben spoke of how a Christian community could be united as a church through reflection on the sacrifice of Jesus, rather than uniting as a nation around a dynamic but hardly self-sacrificing leader. Today we hear about a nation, America, as a moral community, or sometimes as a community of communities. Jim was doubtful of such claims for any nation, and especially as the moral foundation of state action. In this sense, um, to echo what Karen said, he was an individualist and subjectivist in morality as well as in political economy. While a moral order can be informed by a moral consensus emerging from a dominant moral community, Jim, as a classical liberal, sought to distinguish moral orders from moral communities. A moral order does not require agreement on morality. It only, this is only capitalized and emphasized and stressed, it only requires acceptance of other participants in the order as moral equivalents. Or I prefer to use the English expression of saying that uh, we accept them as persons. We are a person, they are a person, moral equivalent. The constitution of a liberal political economy, Jim argued, requires a moral order. It doesn't require a moral community, it requires a moral order, moral equivalence. Some of his works in the 80s and 90s explore this tension. And one source for Jim's reflections on these themes was the first lecture series ever given at the Thomas Jefferson Center for Studies in Political Economy at the University of Virginia. By the way, you are at the legacy, you know, the existing present le legacy of the Jefferson Center. In the spring semester of 1958, the lecturer was Frank Knight, Jim's unofficial thesis supervisor, not the official supervisor, at the University of Chicago, and one of only two individuals whose pictures Jim kept on his office wall. Those of you who were in his office ever know that there were only two pictures on his wall, Vixel and Knight. And they both looked down upon him as he worked. The first lecture in Knight's series on intelligence and democratic action was entitled The Problem of Rational Norms. In the book, it was changed to The Quest for Rational Norms. Now, I'm going to admit here that I think Knight actually tended towards the view that society needed a common moral framework if it was going to be cohesive. However, Frank also never found a moral framework that he thought was worth anything, especially as the foundation for a liberal society. So this initial lecture became a set of reflections on the question of what norms might guide a society's decisions about morality and political economy. A set of rules to guide our choice of moral norms, if you wish. It seems to me that Jim's work on moral order and moral community 
is Knightian in this sense. The rules for our moral order are not the rules for our life together as a community, but for an ordered liberty that enables us to live together, to quote Paul Seabright, as a company of strangers. Persons, not necessarily who live together in community. I've been reminded of Jim's emphasis on moral order during this summer because social movements often seek not only to change laws and institutions, but also to require changes of heart. That is, to shift the moral community of a nation as well as its legal and political economic order. But Jim would remind those social movements that political economy, although not sufficient to the task of providing society with a moral social philosophy, was certainly necessary to the task. While his generalized model of market interaction, generalized to the whole society, uh, could not predict nor provide normative evaluation of specific governance institutions, it did, he argued, generate criteria for the evaluation of the process of interaction and those processes of interaction that allowed for the coercive overriding of individual value would not find ready legitimation. That quotation, by the way, comes from the 1985 essay, Political Economy and Social Philosophy, that Dick calls, what did you call it, the epitome of, G of Jim's social philosophy or something, something like that, yeah. <clears throat> uh, within any kind of contractarian or exchange framework that would, would be used for a description of a moral order. Um, so what I've tried to do here is to give you a, a kind of reconstruction of Jim that focuses on this, on the moral theory um, to complement the, the reconstructions we've had here of um, the underpinnings of his economic thought and the underpinnings of his public choice and public um, constitutional political economy thought. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and I look forward to questions and comments. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.